Welcome to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the before and after some of the world's most effective transformation processes. I'm your host, Paul French. Who hasn't been intoxicated by the thought of an enormous market where proving and scaling can mean hypergrowth? But there are plenty of business problems out there in smaller markets that can lead to the creation of great companies and delighted customers. Jason, Gus, and Octane did just that. The power sports market had long been overdue for disruption, but many VCs were too focused on bigger fish like automotive and health to notice. Jason and team had a vision about bringing people's passion into reality, and they've built a business with legs that really fills a gap in the fintech space. I enjoyed his perspective on the power sports industry and how he and his team have found success by taking a fresh approach, and frankly, about how they've been able to maintain focus and discipline. Jason, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So point of purchase lending has been around at dealerships and other you know major purchases for an awful long time. What's special about recreational and, and outdoor power equipment that never really got that same treatment? Absolutely. So for all sorts of categories, as you pointed out, whether it's auto, furniture, point of sale lending isn't anything new. Uh, it's been around for decades. But effectively, what's happened in our space is that there hasn't been any updates to the experience effectively since its inception. So you have the same processes, the same lenders that have been around for decades. And so what that means is you don't have any of the automation and and kind of next level experience that you have in some of the more competitive markets. And so when we started Octane, it was really important for us to find these kind of overlooked markets that didn't have this sort of investment where we would be able to utilize technology to bring about a much better experience. And so if you compare power sports lending, point of sale lending or marine point of sale lending to auto, there was a lot of things that we were able to do to improve the experience and kind of bring some of the learnings that you might have from some of the markets that had more uh, tech investment in them. And it's interesting though, because we, there's people that spend an awful lot of money with really long lending timelines for side-by-sides and for trailers and all the rest of those types of things. Why do you think that wasn't a point of emphasis for the for the primary lenders? Yeah, so almost all venture capital chases massive TAMs. It's actually you know, one of the most important questions from a venture capitalist perspective when they're scouting for new investments. And so when you look at a market like power sports, which is around $25 billion in sales, depending on how you count the market, and then you compare that to the trillion dollars of sales in auto, or the hundreds of billions in home improvement, or the trillions in mortgage, or you know, the close to trillion in outstandings in student loans, it starts to make sense why venture capitalists tend to back the companies that focus on those larger, more marquee markets. And markets that where we focus tend to be more overlooked, have very limited venture capital investment. And so because of that much smaller TAM size, you know, a lot of these markets are just overlooked. In addition to that, the markets that we focus on are not necessarily well-trafficked or understood by venture capitalists. And so it's not only is it much smaller, it's just not always front and center for a lot of the firms uh, in, in this space. They might not be power sports users. In fact, when I pitch, oftentimes people don't even know what the market is. And so instead of seeing that as a huge issue, we actually see it as a massive opportunity. It's really a place where we could add differentiated value and also really help a market that just doesn't have the, the level of tech investment that it deserves and needs. 
And so even the the people that were providing that existing, they weren't looking at it an opportunity to drive customer experience or to increase tickets or to to improve credit quality or to reduce the lending cycles or any of those types of things. They were pretty just pretty happy to have somebody fill out a paper app sitting at the Kawasaki dealership and just moving on from there. Yeah, so a lot of the incumbent lenders do provide terrific experiences. So I, I want to make sure that that gets across that the incumbents are doing a good job. It's just that their strategies generally aren't technology first. They could be using other strategies, whether that's competitive pricing or you know kind of personalized service. You know what we see kind of across markets. So if you look at small business lending, like OnDeck was really the first to digitize that space. They grew a lot, and then a lot of uh, other fintech startups follow them into that. You had SoFi and student loan refi, uh, you know, better mortgage on the mortgage side. And now you have a lot of people kind of following and kind of bringing around that digital experience. But it wasn't really until you had this massive investment from a venture-backed firm in a space that you see this type of innovation. And so short of that type of disruption occurring in these types of markets, there just doesn't appear to be an obvious need if you're an incumbent who has been, you know, has 10, 20, 30% of the market year after year you might not even realize that this is something that needs to happen and you're focused on the strategy that you've been running that's worked for you forever. And so, you know, to be clear, these companies are very successful and they're very well liked. We're just taking a different approach to the market and we're finding that uh, merchants are really resonating with uh, the strategies that we're deploying. And so I take it that you didn't grow up on a ranch driving a side-by-side with, you know, a family full of you know, UTVs running around the ranch. How did you discover it? Yeah, so actually, you know, I, I wish I did. <laughs> that would have been a terrific <laughs> upbringing. Um, you know, our, our CFO grew up with a tremendous amount of power sports, whether it's, uh, you know, UTVs, ATVs, uh, dirt bikes, et cetera. And many people throughout our company did. Uh, but I actually came to discover it quite a bit later in life. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Palm Springs, California, and then, you know, went, went to college on the East Coast. I live here in New York. So there, there aren't too many power sports units going around in Manhattan, although that would be, uh, you know, very exciting if, if there were. Might be easier commute than, uh, yeah, jump on your four-wheeler and go. You know, I, I've seen some, uh, you know, we, we do see some PWCs and watercrafts, uh, you know, in, in the Hudson, but that's generally about the, <laughs> the extent of it. And so I discovered the market, um, you know, my, my coworker when I was at Capital One had done a rotation in the power sports lending group. Um, and that's really when I first started engaging with the market. And then since then, you know, one of our, our major investors actually, you know, he lives in the suburbs and he has basically these horse trails that he's able to utilize his UTV on. That was really when I started getting my first taste of the action. And ever since I've, I've just absolutely been in love with it. And so you look at the market, you do a look, you know, you, you, you obviously took it from a VC perspective, right? So you start with the TAM and you look at some sort of differentiated positioning, you start to look at the technology side, but technology for technology's sake is rarely a successful story. So what did you use as the vector? You know, obviously, and this is a radical sweeping generalization, and I have owned uh, side-by-sides in the past, so it's not always the case, but, but they're typically not the people that went to Yale that go rolling in and, and buying a bunch of jet skis, right? So, so how, do you, how did you find the angle that you really wanted to use technology to compete on? Absolutely. So the three core values that we compete on our business are one, speed and ease. And so, you know, that is the technology, automation, et cetera. The second is responsibly expanding credit access to underserved yet creditworthy consumers. So the second thing is in many of these markets, you just have a lot of consumers who should be able to access these goods, but for whatever reason, 
the credit just isn't available. So in our market specifically, you know, most of the big banks, their approval rates really start falling once you get below 680, 660 FICO. If you were to compare this with the auto market, which is the most similar from a credit performance standpoint, banks and captives will routinely buy down closer to 600 FICO. And so the way that FICO works is your good, bad odds more or less double every 20 points. So there's a world of difference between a 650 FICO who's not getting access to a loan in a, a 580 FICO. And so you just have a dramatically you know, much larger group of underserved consumers who in other markets actually have access to very competitive credit products who don't have access here. And also because these loans tend to be you know, far smaller than an auto loan, the monthly payments are very manageable for many consumers. What we do is we like to take that winning experience, the speed and ease, the automation, the paperless experience, and couple it with a uh, superior credit offering that can expand credit coverage by 30 to 40% versus the largest incumbents who we compete with. And so the combination of speed and ease with credit, it's nothing new. It's what most of the fintechs did in their respective markets to really win, whether you're looking at you know, Upstart, SoFi, you know, all these people, they, they all had a superior credit offering and superior experience. You really need both. And then of course, in addition to that extra credit coverage, we have the same competitive rates on the prime side of the house that the big banks have. So you're not choosing between a great experience and a great rate. We get you both. And that was kind of the core of their initial business and how we competed for the first uh, few years. And it's what led to early traction. But what we added onto that is this concept of end-to-end purchasing. So if you think about how a bank can compete in a market, their primary strategy, the place where they really can, can beat uh, fintechs is they have access to deposit capital. And what deposit capital gets you is one, uh, generally a much cheaper source of funding. So you have an inherent cost of funds advantage and two, a much more stable cost of funds, uh, a stable capital relative to non-bank lenders who have to tap capital markets to fund their loans. And so their primary weapon versus us is the ability to you know, you know, theoretically be more resilient, um, you know, have a cheaper cost of funds. Uh, you know, be competitive on price. But there are several areas that fintechs, ourselves included, have a key advantage over banks. So first is technology. It's not that banks can't create technology, but what has been shown time and time again is that non, you know, fintechs have been able to be much more nimble and much more rapid in their ability to build technology experience. So things that enable you to enhance the experience, make things faster, make things easier to understand, uh, fintechs typically are able to move much faster and win more uh, over kind of the incumbent uh, players in their respective market. Second strategy is this credit coverage that I described. For a whole host of reasons, it's much easier for a fintech to be more creative and more expansive in credit coverage, as long as they're doing it responsibly relative to a bank. There's all sorts of regulatory hurdles, which oftentimes will make it more challenging for banks to radically update their way of underwriting. They tend to, to follow much more slowly. It's part of the reason why you know, they're able to have access to deposits. They have to be, because they're insured and on all the responsibilities come with that, there's also, uh, they, they have to be a bit more, bit more cautious in how they, they could cover the consumer um, and also update the way in which they underwrite consumers. And so that's typically an advantage that fintechs have is that they've been much faster to adopt all sorts of different data sources to augment their underwriting 
to be able to cover more consumers competitively and more expansively. So the second advantage is you typically as a fintech have an advantage on the credit covered side. Third advantage is what I refer to as value-added services. And so this is really kind of the unique thing, end-to-end purchasing that I described as our third secret. Banks are oftentimes relatively restricted in how they are able to uh, compete in the marketplace outside of the loan itself. But there are many things that tie directly to the value chain that are outside of lending. And so the kind of the third thing that we do is, is try to provide value throughout the consumer purchasing journey before and after the loan itself. And so that enables us to, you know, that was kind of the third angle that we built on a couple of years after we launched our lending business to really be differentiating the market and has driven a tremendous amount of our value. So when you think about things as specific as cross-selling insurance, cross-selling other things that might have typically happened at point of purchase, but you're now going to be able to take a piece of that transaction? So, yeah, I, I think there's been two primary strategies across fintech. One is the cross-sale of financial products. I'm a great admirer of SoFi. I think that they've done a terrific, uh, great things. They're really adopting, in, from my vantage point, the cross-sell everything. They acquire you as a student loan or a personal loan customer, and their ambition is to get you all of your financial products, your credit card, your mortgage, everything, your, your wealth management products, insurance, conceivably, they could do at some point in the future. When they just recently got their banking charter, right? Yes, and they, they got that a, a, a couple of years ago. But e- even ahead of that, they they're, you know, they always wanted this cross-sell. If you read their SPAC presentation, it's a lot about how they want to cross-sell. And, and they're not unique in that. Uh, traditional banks also try to have that strategy as well. It's just very challenging to actually put in motion. The second strategy is much more around utilizing um, a, a, a thoughtful and smart credit product as a way to reduce friction in purchasing and make making purchasing uh, either more economical or higher value. So what I mean by that is, you know, from my vantage point, a firm probably wouldn't describe it this way, but I think that a firm is really kind of doubling down on trying to create this affirm ecosystem or afterpay ecosystem or Klarna ecosystem where consumers over time could theoretically go to a firm for a purchase because the data that they have in their in their product and, you know, they have a massive network of merchants, of manufacturers, and they could subsidize your purchase, help you find the right thing. And then they use this financial product to really help make that process go very smoothly. At Octane, we're very much in that camp. A lot of the value that we provide is to try to help consumers access the purchase of their dreams. You know, our mission is to connect consumers with their passion. That's where a lot of our bets long-term are going. And what that enables us to do is help our, our, our dealership merchant partners sell more products, help our manufacturers sell more products, and make it much easier for our consumers to access the thing that they love most. And so we've really gone that way. So it's actually not the cross-sale of, of, of insurance products or other even other financial services products like auto refi or something like that, which we could do. It's much more about investing on things that help make the entire customer purchasing journey more seamless and efficient. So in that particular case, it makes sense that you're looking at this as being an arm that's valuable for both OEM manufacturers, for the OEM dealerships, as well as sort of a local dealership partner approach, right? Don't try to do this yourself with a firm or the like. Just come to me. I'm a full approach to this, and I'll help you sell more stuff. Oh, what I meant was marginally different, which is that 
Uh, a firm in their respective markets, I believe, is deploying a strategy that helps all the all participants in the ecosystem sell more and help consumers get the best possible purchase in the easiest way. We're deploying that strategy in our respective uh, categories, which are these recreational, what we refer to as passion purchase markets. So it's an analogous strategy. The reason why, you know, I guess it's conceivably possible that a firm could go into our market, but it would take a, a general shift in how they do think of the business. They're going much more the route, and same with Atropay and Klarna, to do everyday purchases, uh, whereas we are much more on the considered purchase front, which is high ticket and secured, which is another kind of uh, difference. So it's an analogous strategy deployed in a, a very different market, but it's it's just kind of the philosophical focus on obsessing about how to make consumer purchases easier and better, getting the per- the consumer the thing that they love most at the most, you know, at, at, at the best terms and helping our merchant and manufacturer partners connect with as many uh, possible customers uh, as we can. And so when you think about uh, or your research about your your customer's customer, right? Because it would, uh, I guess your your primary customer, do you think of it that as, as the end user, the person actually borrowing the money? Or do you think of that as the as the channel or the route to that particular person? Terrific question. So the way that we always talk about it internally is we have three customer sets primarily, and they're all equal partners for us. So we always try to make it a win-win across the across the ecosystem, dealerships, consumers, and manufacturers. So we try to support all three of them and, and never try to be head-to-head. And so that does limit some of the strategies that we could do, uh, but we find that for our market, finding wins for the primary existing participants in the ecosystem has worked for us and is will continue to be our right strategy for. So wh- what is um what is the end user customer? What's the most important thing to them as you guys think about your product backlog? What are the things that you're really trying to balance for that person? Yeah, so let's go through each one. So for manufacturers, they they care a lot that uh, one their consumers are happy, so they're not getting complaints about a a bad experience, whether that's on the you know the payments portal's not 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 good or anything like that. They, we they don't want any of that. And they want to make sure that their dealerships are happy, that they're not complaining to them saying that, you know, we went back on our word or, you know, the experience is slow or that we're not approving anyone. So they, they want to keep their, their their consumer customers happy and their dealerships really happy. And then lastly, they want to see that we're doing a lot of volume and that we're actually driving incremental sales like we promised. That's kind of the three primary things that they care about. Dealerships are pretty similar. They care a lot about the fact that they could trust us, meaning that, you know, our, our credit programs are, you know, you could understand the decisions that are being made. It's, it's uh, consistent. Uh, it's extremely fast. And that they know that, you know, we, we have their back and that, you know, that, you know, we, we have a, a philosophy where we, 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 we can support them. If, you know, we make a mistake, we'll make it right for them. And so they want to make sure that, you know, we're approving things competitively. So, that the, you know, the APRs that we're giving are competitive out to consumers, that the experience is extremely fast and that it's understandable and consistent. Our consumers want to make sure that they are getting competitive rates, that, that our approval rates are also you know, very competitive, and that the process is seamless and as fast and easy as possible for them, and that we could help them along the journey. So you know, our initial product was just this point-of-sale lending product, right? We had this merchant portal where dealers can apply on their consumer's behalf for financing. And then we also had a loan origination system that was we used to underwrite the loans that we built in-house. 
But you know, since that in early days, as I mentioned, we started expanding the business materially to be before and after the loan is actually originated. So we have all sorts of tools that we partner with manufacturers, with dealerships with, where we can integrate our prequal workflow tools that help consumers get the confidence that they need to understand what they can purchase at what rates ahead of getting to the dealership. And then on the dealership side, we have all the right integrations to make it extremely seamless for them to convert far more consumers into uh, you know people looking at their website into actual purchasers and also just have that entire thing happen much faster. The la- last thing I'll just say is then we also have our servicing is in-house. And so the servicing, it refers to everything that occurs after the loan is originated. So as you're making payments, et cetera. And so by having it in-house enables us connect with the consumer and bring them along to future purchases as well. And so the fourth constituent I would imagine at some point was the lender. Are you doing all the lending in-house now, or do you, do you have a, a different way to think about figuring out how to fund the loans? Yeah, ter- terrific question. So, you know, Octane still maintains a, a marketplace, although, you know, there's just a couple lenders who we've worked with for a very long time who are still on that platform. But the vast majority of the business is done through uh, an originator that we own called Roadrunner Financial. And so Roadrunner is on the platform. Um, we own it. And, uh, you know, we maintain uh, manufacturer you know, partnerships with about 40, a little more than 40 manufacturers. And so in the same way that, you know, a firm is partnered with Peloton, uh, going back to the firm example to help understand the business, we're, we're partnered with Polaris, BRP, Kawasaki, and many other leading brands within the power sports and outdoor power equipment markets. So that takes on, a, going back to, to item number two around expanding the credit portfolio that you're looking at, two questions. Number one is when you think about having to own the origination and, and the the delivery of those funds, what are the things that were the big challenges for you going that direction, as opposed to basically just brokering the loan to somebody else and, and letting them own all that downstream risk? Yeah, the yeah, terrific question. The way that we looked at it was uh, being able to own our own destiny and own as much of the experience as possible. An issue that we had is we had a certain vision for how the experience should be. And so if you're someone who's been in this market for decades, you know, originating billions of dollars every year, and you know, some kid in a garage says, hey, change everything you're doing and do it this way, you're, you're going to say you're crazy, go, go away. And so that was effectively our experience when we were building out the lender marketplace. And so we realized that we had this vision for how the experience should be. And the only way for us to actually bring it to life was by powering our own originator to, to, to make that happen. And so by doing the actual lending ourselves, we're able to control the whole experience. We can really dictate how the loan closing process feels from a consumer and dealership perspective. And then also it enables us to uh, be more creative about the different ways that we could help cover consumers responsibly. We could build our own models. We could use various data sources to help us expand the pool. Um, and you know, very proud to say that it's been very successful. We, we've been able to complete four securitizations. We're on to our fifth very soon. You know, we've securitized over a billion dollars. And every single time the rating agencies are rated by both S&P and Kroll now, they bring in their loss assumptions. And if you look at our vintage performance, the performance continues to improve vintage over vintage. And it's a testament to the fact that by being able to have everything in-house, we're just able to control our destiny and, and kind of bring, run the strategies that we need to run. In terms of the biggest challenges with making that happen, um, definitely the credit side was most challenging. Luckily for us, we were able to partner with Ray Duggins, who's our chief risk officer. And so he was 
uh, formerly the Chief Consumer Credit Officer at uh, GE Capital Consumer. And so just a tremendous amount of domain expertise. And we were able to work together to build our, our initial credit model uh, that we built in-house. And then we were able to kind of you know, launch our product. And it's one of these things, right? Uh, you have to constantly iterate it. I'll never forget the very first day we sat there waiting for an app. Well, we finally got an app. We got seven apps, but all seven were declined. And then we realized that you know, we had to update things because you know you have all your historical data. It's never what it's really like in person. And so being constantly having to iterate your program until you finally get the right, the right balance of um, you know, kind of the different risk metrics that you're taking into account is very critical, but it's also you know, very interesting and exciting. At least it was for us when we were getting things off the ground back in 2016. And then, you know, as you continue to win the market, there's just all sorts of different things that you can do uh, that, that are only really available if you kind of own A through Z, the, the experience and the credit product itself. Yeah. And not that you're not that it doesn't sound like you're trying to build a business to be a subprime lender, but as, as you get better and better at that 580 to 660 sort of approach, do you look at your market opportunity at the adjacencies there to be more on the we're really, really good at that tranche of lending? Or do you look at it, we really, really want to get breadth in the power sports passion business? Yeah, so it's to con- it's all passion purchases. So today we do power sports. We also do mower, tractor, trailer. Uh, we're going to be entering a couple new markets very shortly that will be announced uh, in addition. But our broader ambition is to go to every single discretionary passion purchase market. And you know, ju- just to be clear, uh, you know, our average FICO is seven hundred. It's actually it's like the same as a firm. So this isn't uh, you know non-prime subprime focus. It's just one of the differentiations is we're also able to supplement with this kind of non-prime coverage in addition to the prime coverage that we do. And so one of the earliest learnings of the business is what I refer to as the importance of share of wallet. So we signed a manufacturer partner in the very early days, someone who's still a great partner of us today. You know, they have a couple hundred million dollars of declines every year. And so after that deal was signed, you know, we all high-fived. We're like, we're going to originate $200 million. Uh, you know, in our first seven months of lending, we only originated two and a half million. And effectively, our initial credit product was just this near-prime coverage for this one manufacturer. And we actually, we had also signed over that period of time, two other OEMs as well. And yes, it was true that that person had 200 million into clients, but they were split, split over 800 dealerships. So in any given month, those consumers might have only been three to 5% of a dealership's customer base. And if you're only covering three to 5% of a customer base, no dealer is going to remember to use you. And so we, we kind of realized extremely early on that in order to serve these markets appropriately, we had to do what's what we refer to as full share of wallet. And that's two things. One is we need to cover every vehicle type, every manufacturer, new and used, so that we're covering all the inventory of a dealer. And two, we need to do full spectrum. You can't just be near prime or thin file or whatever. You have to do prime, near prime, you know, non-prime and, and, and thin file as well. And so, you know, if you look at the growth of our business, a lot of the jumps have been when we started incrementally expanding that access. And finally, at a certain point, when we covered enough of the dealers inventory competitively, you just saw us grow you know, exponentially. So in 2018, we originated 64 million. In 2019, we originated 247 million. And so as an outsider, a lot of people who don't know our, how we manage the business just said, oh, you probably just relaxed your underwriting criteria. Well, actually, our average FICO went from about 680 to 700 in that period. 
actually underwriting went tighter. It was just that we were getting much deeper penetration within dealership because we had the competitive uh, share of wallet. We were able to become what we we talk about internally first look, meaning that uh, the dealer's first application uh, when they, they think about who to send it to by being able to obsess about what do we need to do to be, get that dealer's first application it kind of resulted in us being able to deepen our penetration and grow the business materially. One last thing I'll mention, we went from 247 million uh, in, uh, in, in 2019 to our run right now is well over a billion dollars, but our active merchants has only, have only increased by about 30%. So the vast majority of the increase in volume is actually from deepening penetration, which is something that makes us uh, you know, extremely, extremely excited because it means that uh, more and more dealers every single month are trusting us as their first look partner, which means that we're really driving a much better, uh, you know, a terrific experience for the space. It's amazing when you focus on the, on your customer's experience, good things tend to happen, don't they? Oh, I, I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. Well, you've been very generous with your time. The last question I typically ask is a really hard one. So hold on. <laughs> um, when, the, when the day is over and you're done uh, trying to make passion uh, available to more people more effectively. What do you like to listen to? So I actually, I actually am a lover of podcasts as well. So of course, in addition to this podcast, which is terrific, I, I really enjoy history podcasts. So uh, hardcore history. Um, if you're familiar with that podcast, I, what I'll do is I'll, you know, I, I live in Manhattan. I'll go for a very long walk and just listen to a podcast. Uh, you know, generally history podcasts. And then I also like conversations with Tyler Cohen as well, uh, a lot as well. Um, and then, um, yeah, so those are kind of the primary things that, that I'll do. Go for a very long walk with a nice podcast. Well, I sure appreciate your time today, Jason. Have a, have a great one. And I wish you all the best in success. Thank you so much for having me. It's been terrific. There were plenty of things to take away from my conversation with Jason, but here are a few. First, point-of-sale lending isn't new, but it hasn't been updated technology-wise for decades. Octane viewed this as a chance to tap into underserved markets and set a transformation in motion. Rather than considering underdeveloped markets to be a massive issue, they viewed them as a golden opportunity to offer a differentiated value proposition. Second, it's easy for incumbents to stay focused on the tried-true strategies they've employed for decades. And while most VC firms are focused on the larger markets like automotive and health, smaller markets became ripe for disruption. Fresh investments in the power sports area created opportunities to breathe new life into the industry and bring it into the modern age. Third, like many successful fintechs, the company seeks to couple the frictionless experience with a competitive credit product, so consumers aren't forced to choose between a great experience and a great rate. And this combination has ultimately led to significant traction early on. And finally, Octane has been deliberate about its mission of creating thoughtful, high-value credit products to make the purchasing process more economical. They want to connect the consumers with their passion and ultimately also help the dealers and manufacturers sell more products. By investing in the entire customer experience, Octane is achieving that vision and benefiting the entire ecosystem. Thanks for listening to Transform It Forward the podcast that gives you an inside look at some of the world's most effective transformation processes. If you like this episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Paul French, and I look forward to being with you next time.
Transform It Forward is brought to you by Axway, who believes that in order to create the most value for customers, partners, and employees, you need to open everything by securely integrating and moving data across a complex world of old and new technologies.